My name is Connor Ratliff, and I made a public access masterpiece. Welcome to I Made This from Do Anything Media. I'm Bill Meeks, and I think you're going to love today's guest. Connor Ratliff is best known for his work at UCB or the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and Improv School up in New York City. There you'll see him in shows like ASCAT 3000, his own creation, the George Lucas Talk Show, he plays George, or as a member of the long-form improv troupe, The Stepfathers. He also plays Chester on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He does random characters and sketches on daily show-derived shows like Last Week, Tonight, and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And, well, and this is where I discovered him. He was also a regular on every iteration of The Chris Gethard Show, a, a wonderfully bizarre public access talk show turned cable TV series, where Connor most famously spent an entire year running for president for no other reason than he was legally allowed to as a 35-year-old. Living the dream, right? And it's Connor's involvement with Chris Gethard that brings him to the show today. After his cable show was canceled, uh, Chris Gethard returned to public access earlier this year with Chris Gethard Presents, basically a showcase for his talented friends in the New York comedy scene. Connor's episode, talk a doodle doo starts off as a late-night talk show hosted by Rascal the Talking Rooster that quickly falls apart when the rooster won't talk. That just means that Connor's character farmer Albert Cooper has to step in to save the show. From there, it becomes a real piece of theater, with sets calling to mind the rural farmlands explored in Steinbeck's of Mice and Men. Expertly staged and foolishly named, Talk-A-Doodle-Doo keeps you guessing for the whole hour. And the best part, it's free to watch on YouTube. Well, you don't have to watch it before listening to this interview. In fact, I've taken a lot of care and time and energy to make sure that you can understand what we're talking about, even if you haven't seen the show. I highly recommend you go to YouTube, search for talk a doodle Do and Talk-A-Doodle-Do-It. It is a treat. Best of all, in this interview, Connor goes really deep on a bigger idea he has that he wants to do in the same format as Talk-A-Doodle-Do. It's a really exciting idea, and it was thrilling to talk to Connor about it. Now, I made this for you. Go ahead and take a listen. Connor, uh, thank you for joining me. Um, I, I've already told the listeners a little bit about the project, but why don't we uh, start a little bit with how you came up with it? We, where did you come up with this crazy idea? Well, uh, I was actually on uh, Sebastian Canelli, uh, who plays Rascal the Rooster in Talk a Doodle Doo. Brilliant performance. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll, I'll give you Rascal the Talking Rooster. <laughs> You can do this. <laughs> and he's such he's one of my favorite actors and improvisers. And I was on a podcast that he does, which is a, a podcast where uh, you talk about how you've changed over the course of your life. It's like who you were as a young person, how you're different now. Mm-hmm. I was talking about uh, how I wanted to be an animator when I was a kid. I really wanted to work for Disney. I wanted to make cartoons. And the more I uh, grew older and learned more about what it would actually entail to be a professional animator, I had a cousin who worked for Don Bluth, 
studios and uh, Don Bluth is he's the the guy who did an American Tale and The Land Before Time and The Secret of Nim. Oh wow. But by the time my cousin was working for him, he was doing movies like A Troll in Central Park and a movie called Rockadoodle, which are the less acclaimed Don Bluth movies. <laughs> like he had a, a run of like real classics and then uh, you, you I, they start to uh, taper off in terms of popularity. Mm-hmm. And Sebastian was laughing at the title Rockadoodle. Rockadoodle is a movie about a singing rooster. Um, it's about other things. I haven't seen it. <laughs> but there, if you watch the trailer for it, there's a lot more going on. There's like some sort of weird demon god. There's just like a lot more than you would assume. Edmund always enjoyed reading his favorite book, but tonight he's really getting into it. From Don Bluth, director of An American Tale and The Land Before Time... The deep rockadoodle mythology, definitely, yeah. I'm, I honestly, I need to see the movie given the fact that it sparked this other thing. I think it probably would be, and my cousin worked on it, and I like early Don Bluth, so I might as well <laughs> check this. I do like Don Bluth animation, I like the animation in his movies, but Sebastian said he made a joke that he's like, it's about a singing cheese doodle. And I started making fun of him that when he heard rock a doodle, that he thought of a cheese doodle rather than cock a doodle do. And I immediately pitched an idea for a, what I was thinking would be like a talk show, mm-hmm. but like a character talk show or, or really at first it was just like a one man show called cock a doodle do where Sebastian would dress up like a rooster, walk out center stage, uh, make the cockadoodle-doo noise, and then just talk for an hour. <laughs> just monologue as a talking rooster. And then I was like, no, I want to be in the show, so I'll be the farmer. I'll, I'll like enter, and I'll be like your sidekick on the show. And then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, we could have guests. They could walk on, and you could talk to them. And Originally, I was just thinking of this as a show that we could do at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Yeah. And then I kind of put it out of my head. I think that was like January or something. And then Gethard started doing this Chris Gethard Presents show at Public Access. And I knew I was going to at some point do an episode of it. So if you want the real comedy, the comedy that looks like the stuff you'll see on stages all over New York City, you come here. You want the stuff that's not overly sanitized. It's right here. Chris Gethard Presents, bringing you the best comedy New York City has to offer. Every Wednesday at 11 p.m. starting June 26th. And originally I had pitched an idea to them that was uh, a a completely different idea, which I might do at some point down the line. And it got approved. And then there was like, your show will be in October. And so this was like in the summertime, like you're going to have this slot. Does that work for you? And by the time the email came around um, to actually formalize what I was going to do, I said, I actually have a different idea. And specifically what I was thinking, you know, I've been keeping up with watching the various episodes of Chris Gather Presents and what different people were doing with it. Oh, yeah. And everyone's doing such varied things. Yeah. I was looking at them and thinking, like, I really like this thing that they're trying with this or I like that thing. And I I got it into my head that I could, uh, you know, there were a couple of episodes that were a little bit more scenic. Um a little bit more theatrical as opposed to just doing like a a talk show format. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought, well, I don't want, like, I really liked Riley's episode. Riley Soliner did an episode called Klon. My fleet of Klon children and I, we will land on the edge of this beautiful crater. And my Klons, they will exit the rocket and they will build me a moon base. Like a new moon office, just for me, <laughs> to dream up the best snacks for you. Uh, that I thought was really ambitious. And I was like, ah, I want to do something ambitious. I want to do something that's like fully uh, like a stupid idea, but done with full dramatic commitment. Cause I think, I think that's, that's where what I find funny is I think there's a style of doing certain kind of comedy that is very popular, but, and I, and I like some of it, but I, I find it hard to do personally, which is when the, the comedy is a little bit sort of winking, like, isn't this stupid? Yeah. Kind of like that anti humor, anti jokes, that kind of thing. Yeah, but it's 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 a little bit like I think it's it can be like a defense mechanism that it's like I want you to know that I think this is stupid. So if you don't like in case you don't like it, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. If you judge the joke, that's not a judgment on me kind of thing. Yeah, and I'm not totally adverse to that kind of escape hatch in comedy, mm-hmm. but I just find it easier to fully commit emotionally so that it's not like, isn't this stupid? It's like, this is the most important thing that's ever happened. You know, like, um, there's, there's a remove that doesn't, it doesn't, I can do it, but I don't get any satisfaction at it. Like I could do a kind of thing where it's like, um, uh, isn't my character kind of a idiot or like, isn't it like, I know how to do it. I just, when I've done it, I don't feel very, uh, uh, good about it like it just doesn't sat it doesn't scratch the itch you know Mm -hmm. so i had this idea that i thought well what if i do the the talking rooster talk show but then i was like well i wanted to be really emotional and then i i like i I didn't intend originally for it to be an homage to one froggy evening the uh, the wonder brothers cartoon i i sort of outlined the whole thing before i realized that that's what i had done which is Mm. You know, if for people who've seen that classic Warner Brothers cartoon, yeah, I was going to say maybe refresh us a little bit on. Yeah, one froggy evening. If you haven't seen it, I mean, if if you, if you have seen it, you'll recognize it immediately. It's the one where a guy finds a, a a singing dancing frog, and then he can't get it to perform in front of anyone except him. So he rents out a theater, and the frog just sits there like a frog. He shows it to agents and managers, and the frog will just sit there. But whenever he's alone, the frog sings, "Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey." You know, just just like is a is a marvel of entertainment. And then decades later, he became the mascot for the WB. That's right. That's right. He he, he became. They gave him a name, Michigan J Frog. <laughs> but basically, that's what it is. Like it's mm-hmm. basically a. If this is true, what else is true? Like, there's no moment in that cartoon where he communicates with the frog or talks about, like, why are you doing this to me? He's just sort of despondent and eventually, like, gets rid of the frog, and then we see it repeat again in the future. So I I was really more just like, what I wanted to do was a drama about these characters and how they, like, hurt each other and what they were scared of. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a risk, I think, to it in the sense that in the first half hour, it just feels like a talk show where things are going wrong. Yeah, it felt very sort of gaggy, but like I, I, I was okay with that. I'll, I'll give you Rascal the Talking Rooster. <laughs> All right, you can do this. <laughs> 
and then all of a sudden it just completely flips and it just blew my mind. Yeah, and I I think if the show had just been the talk show where the rooster won't cooperate, uh, I wouldn't. It wouldn't have been enough to hold my interest, but I still wanted it to be good. Like I still wanted it to be. I wanted to get a good guest. I wanted to get a good musical. I wanted it to still be good, so that people wouldn't think it's. I didn't want people to think it's a bad show. But I, I didn't mind if for the first half people thought, oh, well, this is fine. Yeah. Uh, so we really did like put in effort. To, you know, the first half of it, I'm presenting it, and I only promoted it in advance as it's just the first talk show hosted by a, a talking rooster. Because <laughs> you're in luck. Next week on the CGP, right here on your TV or whatever device you're using to watch me right now, we're going to bring you something you ain't never seen the likes of before in all of TV history. It's a little show we're calling Talk a Doodle Doo. And it's the first ever TV talk show to be hosted by a talking rooster. Not- because I wanted people to be surprised. I wanted the second half to feel like completely unexpected. Oh yeah, it, it for for me as an audience member, it was because you know, like like you said, you know, it felt. Oh, this is fine. This is fun. You know, this will be a nice hour. Uh, you know, where things constantly go wrong, and then they cut over to uh, the next week's guest, so they can plug their episode. And you come back, and it's like, wait a second, we're in a whole different world here. How did they accomplish this in like three minutes? Yeah, and I didn't want people to watch ten minutes of it and think like, I get this, and turn it off. Yeah. So the first half is a talk show. And the rooster won't talk. And then the second half is like uh, a serious drama about why the rooster didn't talk and why the farmer wanted the rooster to host this show in the first place. It could have been so good. You know you could have been good. You could have hosted that show and you would have done great. He just froze up. Wouldn't even talk to me. Wouldn't even talk to me. We did all that planning. Writing all those jokes, working on the desk piece, you seemed excited. And then we go out there, and there's lights, and there's people, and it's just like, you're just like a regular rooster. Oh, fuck you, bro. (laughs) (laughs) And by the end of it, you sort of understand uh, why everybody did what they did. It also ends in a way that, like, is hopefully surprising to people that like I don't think I think most people were surprised that it ended with a song you know like I just think they're like (laughs) cause God gave me a rooster who could talk and that made me believe I was the cock of the wall never stopped to think how it felt for you like a fully fully serious committed like ballad and then we did like a post credits uh twist and yeah that that almost felt like a a tease for talk a doodle too it i mean we are uh, we are currently like talking about doing a second one Mm -hmm. but i don't want to fall into the trap of well i gotta do twists because to a certain extent, like it's very hard to do twists because uh, once people are expecting them, people are looking for them, and even even if you surprise somebody, they know to be surprised. Mm-hmm. So even if you go see like an M Night movie and you don't guess the twist, when the twist happens, you're like, oh, a twist, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And so there may not be any twists when we do the second one, simply because. Even if I were trying to fake people out and say, like, guess what? This time there's no twists. 
mm-hmm. even if you believed me and and thought, oh, he's really not going to do twists. When the twists arrive, it'll just feel familiar anyway. So it may, there may not be any mileage in there being more structural twists. The next one might simply be about, well, it's going to be committed drama with silly things. I, I, I think there's the, that's a trap that you can fall into, which is just like, we change it up every <laughs> time, you know, like, um, I don't know how many times you can do that before it starts to feel. I was just watching, I was just rewatching, um, that, uh, too many cooks, you know, the, the adult swim thing. Oh yeah. From adult swim. Yeah. Which I loved the first time I saw it. And this time, honestly, uh, and I, I, someone had said to me that the, they liked it until it got murdery. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't mind all that. And then when I watched it again, I was like, oh, I do mind. I actually wish that the, the murder stuff takes over. I like aspects of it, but there was a part of me that was like, I wonder, though, if they could, how long they could have kept going without doing that. My favorite part of that one was when they started just moving off into just completely disparate genres like space sci-fi and all that stuff. And that's when it felt really electric to me. Yeah, I didn't mind the genre moving, but then there's a point where it starts just getting murder. Mm-hmm. And when I was watching this again, I was like, I don't dislike it per se, but there's a part of me that's like, I wonder, I, I get why they did it, but there's a part of me that's like, I wonder if they had just kept trying to commit to it being, because um, I really like when it starts becoming that the titles become the characters and the people become the t- things like that. Uh, but anyway, like, so I may, I may, if we do another one, just double down on just doing like a committed drama that's funny because it's ridiculous, you know, and because you're, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, one of my favorite things about that, you know, that second half after the flip was just, it was so rooted in the relationships of the characters, the, the talking chicken and the farmer Mm -hmm. and his wife and everything. And it it just, uh, like you said, you know, it made it feel very emotional. It made me feel a connection to these characters where, you know, if you had done the entire hour as the talk show where everything goes wrong, it would have been a Mm -hmm. fun time for everyone, but it, it, I don't think it would have stuck with me as much. Yeah. The, the first half is like candy. It's like, whereas like the second half is like hearty food, you know? Um, I also, I had some very specific, I came in with some very specific ideas about how I was like, it feels like I've been, you know, doing shows at MNN as so many years with the Gethard show and stuff. And I was like, is there a way to make it look different? Like if I stand really far in the background and the other character faces the camera, like, can we do that? And I was trying to create as much, like, depth of field as I could. The staging was very, I, you know, I have a theater background. It was very theatrical. It reminded me of something, you know, my professor would have done in college for, like, a production of, of Mice and Men or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, I was thinking about, like, that golden age of drama in the 50s where they had, like, the, the, the you know, these, uh, like, playhouse dramas where they would basically film a play and that would be a TV show or mm-hmm. uh, JD Amato sent me a still afterwards of the, like, I think like masterpiece theater did like a, a, there's like a version of Oklahoma not too many years ago that he's like, did you base it off of this? I'm like, well, that's what we were trying to do, but I wasn't <laughs> thinking of that specifically, but it is that same thing where it's like you sacrifice uh, a little bit of the uh, uh, realism for like what looks good theatrically, you know, mm-hmm. that like, like I never face Sebastian during our scenes because it'll just look better if he faces the camera and I face <laughs> the camera and we're far enough away that it's like, yeah, this makes sense as a conversation, you know? And you might not have had a, as big of a 
part in this uh, because, you know, there's a whole crew there with volunteers and everything. But how was it from a practical standpoint? Because there was a lot more camera moving mm-hmm. in this episode than any other uh, Chris Gethard Presents episode. I mean, they were dealing with a lot of technical difficulties because uh, if you watched it live, the live version, the, the version that's on YouTube is slightly repaired because the graphics computer died 10 seconds before the episode started. Mm-hmm. So they were... Basically, the control was on was on fire the whole time. They were <laughs> rebuilding the show from scratch, oh, wow. so it didn't originally have like the opening credits for the talk show, and it didn't have any of the the on screen graphics. And I didn't, you know, because we didn't really rehearse it. Like we did a couple of very quick blocking moves just so we would have marks, so we'd know where to stand and how certain shots would look. But mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't even realize until the show aired how often they'd cut to other angles. I actually would have been fine with some of those scenes being single takes. Yeah. Because there were some shots that we worked very hard on, like make sure it looks like this. And then it would like cut to a side angle and you'd see like audience members and stuff. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I didn't want that. I wanted like, uh, I wanted just like the deep focus shots, Mm -hmm. you know, but I have, I I'm, I'm sort of trying to use this episode as like a, a demo for, a show that I want to do in the quote unquote, like real world of like TV shows, because I've had an idea for a number of years for a kind of show that, um, and I pitched it around a few years ago because I feel like as someone who like, I'm, I'm sort of like been at UCB for about a decade and there's a certain kind of improv that you don't see anywhere because, Mm -hmm. Most of the time, like the best example of it might be like in like the Christopher Guest movies where you use improv as a way of like making a finished product. Yeah. And and there's a lot of emotion in those movies. But a lot of times what improv is used for in film or TV is like for Curb Your Enthusiasm, it's not to develop what happens. It is just to riff on, you know, like they'll film a scene to keep it loose but they like write out every detail of what actually happens. Yeah, it's really just more of a sweetener to something that's already there. Yeah. So it's like someone can come in and go like, why do they make these buttons so small or something? And then they'll riff on that and maybe that'll get used, mm-hmm. but they won't, you know, they're still very like structured and, or in a movie you'll, you'll try to get like alts. So it's like, let's do an alt and maybe you'll, we'll do a funnier take of that scene. And, and that's all great. But I, I feel like if you go see, really good improv by a really committed team you'll occasionally see stuff that's a little bit more um surprising or kind of transformative and a little bit more like i mean we didn't have a script there was literally the only scene that was scripted was the last scene the marvel sting which was barely scripted just because that was a timing thing we wanted to know that we had a timing because and that was scripted so that I intentionally was like, we don't know when we're going to arrive at the end. But once we go into the song, all we have left is that last scene. And I said, what I want is I wrote about a minute's worth of dialogue that would be on the prompters for them. And then when you reach the end of that, I just want you to uh, repeat the same idea back and forth like a Meisner exercise. Uh-huh. And, the, and you'll just go until the camera cuts out because the show is done. <laughs> Because I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be really funny. I thought like even if if it goes a really long time, like I don't care if we end ten minutes early. I knew that Sebastian and Alex Song could just say whatever it takes. We'll do whatever it takes. Nothing will stop us. And they can. I knew that that would just get funnier. 
that went for what, like a, probably a minute or two at the end of it. It wasn't even that long, and it's it got it got funny because there's a part where uh, I think Alex Song says, "Whatever comes our way," and Sebastian goes, "Anything can happen. Anything can come." And he was just trying to. And then he, you see, if you watch it, you see his face, and he realizes that he's just said, "Anything can come." <laughs> And then his face just alters a little, like, and then it cuts to Alex Song, who's full on, like, <laughs> laughing, trying not yes. to laugh. Um, Anything at all. Which is really fun. Anything. Yes. Yes. Anything at all. We won't stop. We won't stop. Nothing will stop us. Nothing will stop us. Anything at all. Anything. Yes. Yes. Whatever comes our way. We'll still, anything. <laughs> Nothing will stop us. Anything could come. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Nothing will stop us. Nothing will stop us. Anything. Um, but all the other scenes, like like Alex Dixon, uh, literally all she all all we had was a structure of here's what's going to happen in these scenes. Like mm-hmm. Casey, you'll come in with the mail and you'll have these letters, and then I'll give a monologue. Like literally, that monologue I give at the end, all that was on the structure was just like the farmer gives a monologue. Oh wow! And that none of it was written. We just got to figure out what choice we're going to make. Monsanto will take our farm. And we're going to write letters to all of those companies telling them, thank you very much. We're not going forward with this project at this time. (laughs) But please, keep us in mind if later down the road there's a project that's right for our interests. (laughs) At one point during the monologue, Jersey Dave uh, who is one of the behind the scenes uh, gurus and geniuses and and workhorses on the show? <laughs> he gave me a he gave me I think either a four or a five at a point in the monologue where I was like, oh no, I have five minutes left <laughs> in the monologue, you know. So I was like, I gotta pace myself. Uh, my scene with Alex Song, we knew like the basic what needed to happen. I thank you and I wish you a good day, Miss Bear. I wish you a good day. I don't think he does wish me a good day. <laughs> like, that is funnier than anything that I could have written. Like, that's a classic Alex Song line. And, and same with Alex Dixon. Like, she does that whole monologue about how we couldn't have children. I didn't know she was going to say any of that. And I actually didn't hear most of it when we were filming because I was working. I was focusing on other like uh, uh, sort of practical things that were happening off camera. The entire production. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have this notion for a TV show and I just, I feel like this is a doable goal within the next three years for me, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is that uh, especially in an age where, you know, I know there's too many TV shows and TV shows. I just read an article in one of the trades. I don't remember if it was Hollywood Reporter or Variety or it was one of those that there was a link to it talking about how scripted TV shows are ballooning in budget. And like, 
sometimes it's completely justifiable. Like the Star Wars, Disney Plus, The Mandalorian show. That's $15 million an episode, and it looks like a Star Wars movie. So you're like, I get it. I get why this costs $15 million because <laughs> you've created – this is in a world where this looks better than the Star Wars prequels. And that's why that's where the money went. And you're also getting like you know Nick Nolte and <laughs> you're getting like the uh, Werner Herzog. I'm sure didn't agree to do a Star Wars TV show for no money, you know. <laughs> Uh, there, that, that money is, is there, but the morning show, which I haven't seen, but that's on Apple. That's also $15 million an episode. And I'm pretty sure most of that is going to like just getting the big stars in the shows. I don't think if you watch the morning show that that is going to look appreciably that much more expensive than a lot of other shows that don't cost 15 million an episode, you know? Yeah. You're paying to get movie stars to be in your TV show. As a business, there's a certain value to that, but you know, it doesn't really add to the artistry of the thing. Yeah, it makes sense. And it, you know, that there's a reason that we know about the morning show and it's because of that, you know, that I'm not saying that those, that they're not worth the money, Mm -hmm. but we are in an age where TV shows are getting more and more expensive. And I, feel like what I would like to do, I have an idea for a show and it is after doing talk a doodle do, I really felt good that as proof of concept for this other idea I have for a show, because for a number of years now, I've wanted to do a show in New York city mm-hmm. that I now know would take all I need is one day in a small studio with a little bit of production design, like somebody uh, frugal and creative who can make a set, who can make something that looks pretty good, and a handful of actors that I know I can work with, and a rough outline, a rough idea of what we want to accomplish in the day. And and then a little bit of post-production, like a little bit of the ability to do more than one take, do a little bit of coverage, and then edit and score it. Mm-hmm. Basically, we did this. We did talk a little do with no rehearsal. Uh, we only have one bite at the apple to do it while the control room is full on malfunctioning, <laughs> and we're doing it with like a studio audience that is kind of you know uh, we're having to like the camera movements are being dictated in large part because people are literally sitting everywhere on the floor that a camera isn't currently located. Yeah, so kind of the deck stacked against uh, this going off without a hitch. Yeah. This is like the worst possible. I mean, in some ways it's the best because it's, I was saying to Gethard afterwards that, you know, whenever people do like things like noises off, like things that are like backstage, backstage drama, whenever someone does something that's set in the world of live TV or, you know, uh, like I'm recurring on the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And in that show, there's constantly things where like a show is happening, but like things are going wrong behind the scenes Mm -hmm. in ways that if they in real life never really happen or they happen once, you know, we're, you know, uh, uh, people talk about things that have gone wrong on Saturday night live 40 years ago, (laughs) you know, like, like people are still talking about like, and then Elvis Costello switched what song he was going to do. And it's like, that's how infrequently things really go wrong behind the scenes. Yeah. But People probably have that in their heads, though, because when it does go wrong, it always makes for a great story that gets repeated for decades. Yeah, but this really genuinely did have the feeling of like, 
we started, and from the very beginning of the show, we had people off camera just gesturing like, <laughs> Phil, cover. You know, they were just like, keep going, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is like the – that's exciting and fun, and that's part of the reason for trying something weird like this is that's what CGP is like this great sandbox where people can – they can try, and they you know that you can actually do things that are risky because if they fail, they'll just – you know, they, nobody lost a fortune. It's just like – uh, uh, an experience. Come back next week, try again. Yeah. And that's part of what makes it exciting to watch is knowing, especially live, knowing that uh, anything can go wrong uh, in ways that are not really true in a well-oiled machine that most TV shows on, you know, proper net, like live TV shows on network TV, there might, there are occasions where things go wrong, but in it's rare, you know? Oh yeah. So this is, as proof of concept for the kind of show I really want to make, this is sort of like, look, we did it live with cameras that were restricted, with equipment that was malfunctioning, with no rehearsal and no ability to do a second take. So, like, Alex Dixon did those monologues. And in, and in real life, if we wanted to do a second take and we're like, let's change one thing about it, it would take five minutes. And it really wouldn't add that much time to the actual pr- – like – I know that I need one day in a studio with a set and some actors. And what I'm hoping to do is find someone who let me make five to ten episodes of television with the kind of talent that I have access to in New York uh, through the people that I've worked with. And also, you know, there are people who, if it's just a day, there are other people that even some major, like, sort of celebrities who would be willing to be a part of something like that because they know that it's like in one day they'll get to do something that the quality will be really interesting and cool and good. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this would be a show that would cost a lot of money. Even if I budgeted it so that everybody felt like they were being very well compensated, I think it would be even at the high end of what I'm thinking, a very low budget show that would be unlike anything that anybody else is doing, which is a hard thing to say confidently nowadays because there are so many different kinds of shows. But the, pro- the problem I have is that like, there's a lot of like, uh, when you're pitching a show, there's a lot of like, well, what is the show exactly? I don't think I could have gotten anybody to let me make Talk-A-Doodle-Do in a normal circumstance. Well, I mean, I would have I financed it, but I don't have a lot of resources. And the thing is, the resources change you. Who knows what kind of person you'd be once you got those resources. You start <laughs> to get very protective of them. Like, wait, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, and it is one of those things where, like, I think you can show people talking to it'll do, and people are like, oh, I get it. This is great. Mm-hmm. But it's, that's a very different conversation than even the email from that email thread. If you could read it when I originally pitched the idea to CGP, uh-huh. he's like, Gethard's like, this is insane. <laughs> he's like, let's do it. But he's like, you know, what? why are you doing this? He's like, you booked a jug band. What are you doing? <laughs> and so the idea that I'm going to get somebody at, you know, Viacom to be like, tell us more about this talk a doodle do. But I think I could, I think I could show people talk a doodle do and be like, let me do 10 of these. That wouldn't necessarily, I I wouldn't need to do a full hour. I'm even thinking of a show that would be a much more manageable length because I mean, I have, I have basically an idea for a show where if you build a different set for every episode and you have a different cast, but maybe some recurring sort of ensemble. I think, I think you can make something that 
is and if I could do that, honestly, I've reached a point where it used to be I would have these ideas and a lot of my ideas were all based on this sort of stepping stone idea that like like I made a movie once and I really thought of it the whole time, even though I was I was proud of a lot of aspects of it. I never stopped having the mentality that the movie would be a calling card. Like mm-hmm. I'll show this to people and they'll see that I can act or that I can write or, you know, and this isn't the thing. This is just something to get the thing. Yeah. Like every, like everything was a stepping stone. And I've really, I, I've had that beaten out of me by decades of disappointment that now in a good way, I, you know, like when I started doing UCB, I wasn't thinking of UCB as a stepping stone to getting back into acting, which is what it ended up being. But I actually resisted it. Like I had managers and agents approach me in my early years at UCB and they were like, why don't you have an agent? Why don't you have a manager? And I was like, because I don't want to work in show business. And that was the end of the conversation. You know what I mean? Like I had someone who was like, well, what's your actor's access page? I'm like, I don't have one because I don't want to work in show business. I just want to do shows here because I like it. Mm-hmm. And I think I've had a little bit more success this time around as an actor simply because I keep pulling away from it a little bit. And that is for some perverted reason, that is what show business seems to like. Well, they don't like desperation, right? So if you're kind of like, eh, this is okay, then you don't have that sort of desperation <laughs> angle. I mean, I get why they don't like desperation, but I don't think they even like enthusiasm or, <laughs> or uh, uh, just like uh, they don't like that you want it. They mm-hmm. like it when you don't want it, which I don't know what that says on a deeper, darker level about show business. But they just want you to emerge from the tank, play the character they want you to play, then go back in there and stay in the Matrix until they need you again. I, I literally have booked roles on TV shows the day after telling a casting director that they're not going to cast me and that they shouldn't. <laughs> I once told a casting associate who was who had come by the Gethard show when we were in True TV and I was up for a show and I was completely wrong for the part and I had auditioned the other day and they were like, hey, you are you just sent in a tape for this the other day. I'm like, yeah, I'm not right for it. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I'm not right for it. You can find somebody who's better for that part, but I hope you'll keep me in mind for future parts that I am right for. And they're like, no, you're right for it. I'm like, no, I'm not. I, <laughs> come on. And I was like, I am 100% not right for this part. And the next day I booked the part. And I'm like, is that a coincidence? Or did I really just like neg my way into a role? <laughs> that, that's one of those things where you're like, I'm going to learn the wrong lesson from this. I'm absolutely going to learn the wrong lesson from this. Uh, when I signed, you know, I, I, I've had a manager for a few years, but I didn't have an agent until recently. And when I went in for the meeting with the agents, uh, I went into this agency. All I told them were stories about things that I'd done wrong over the years, including <laughs> that I was like, I, I told them I didn't like having an agent before when I was in London and that I started throwing auditions because if I didn't like the play, I would I, I said I mastered the art of um, doing an audition that was good enough so that they would think I was a good actor, but wrong enough that they would think I wasn't right for this job. <laughs> so that I didn't want them to think I was a bad actor, but I didn't want them to cast me in this play that I didn't like. Yeah. And I would do that instead of telling my agent I don't want to go up for this. I would go in for the audition and I would like – I even did an audition once where I – 
I was this was in London and it was for a play and it was for an American character and I did I made my accent not quite as convincing an American accent. <laughs> you walked back your natural American accent. Yeah, I sort of did my version of what British people trying to do an American accent. So I would set, so I would make the other British actors sound better because I went in and I was sort of like. Well, darling, I don't know why I would be doing this. And I was sort of like, yeah, yeah, I've noticed British people they'll also get a little nasal, nasal, like, oh yeah, I know, yeah. you know. Uh, and so I, that's how I got my agent was like telling them like, listen to what a bad like client I am, uh, <laughs> and how I don't like having an agent. But but anyway, so I've 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 no longer have like that stepping stone mentality. I don't think of this as like, well, if I get this show then I can do other shows because people will see what a good show I can make. Mm-hmm. Truly, all I want to do is make five to ten episodes of a half-hour show that uses some of the same approach that we ha- we use in the second half of Talk-A-Doodle-Doo. Yeah. And one week it could be a Western, the next week it could be a science fiction, all on very simple sets – uh, a, a little bit more uh, uh, detailed than obviously what we threw together. Because also with uh, with talking it'll do, you had to put the setup. Uh, you had to wait for the other show at M M&M to get done, mm-hmm. and then we had a very brief window for them to like put up a set, like put out some hay bales and stuff. And I would like to do something where it looks good, but maybe it doesn't look. Maybe it still looks a little bit cheap. I don't care. I think there's ways of making very simple sets look good if you film them right well i, I think you know we, we, with that kind of concept too looking cheap isn't necessarily a bad thing it kind of adds to the aesthetic of it yeah i don't mind if it looks a little bit the word i'll use in place of cheap would be theatrical mm-hmm. uh like i don't care if it looks a little bit like you're on a set because i think that there's charm to that in like multicam sitcoms that like with the exception of maybe like cheers a lot of multicam sitcoms don't look like anybody's real apartment or anybody's real, you know, like uh, Cheers is one of the few multicams where you actually kind of forget that it's a sitcom set because it looks so great. I, I'll, uh, I'll leave uh, what the creator has done on the table, but uh, Horace and Pete from a couple years back, uh, you know, did a really good job with that sort of theatrical multicam staging. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that is... That is also a show that I think is a genuine point of inspiration in the sense of like just because it looks like a dumb sitcom set doesn't mean that the scenes can't be like fully committed. You know that Mm -hmm. like I do think that like it is one it is like we are in a weird period in terms of not to not to take us down a rabbit hole, but like um, that that is a work that I, I think is likely going to be a little bit forgotten because of all the scandals and things. Yeah. It was already a little bit off to the side, but like the Lori Metcalf episode of that is something that I think people should study in terms of like what a TV show can be. Oh yeah. Cause that's the one that starts with her having the big monologue about having the, uh, what was an affair with that farmer guy yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. And it's also like a, a, an inspiration in the sense of like your, that show was like, you're watching the show and you think you figure out what it is. And then it keeps changing what it is. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was changing in real time. It was like, as they were making it, they'd release an episode. Like even just the fact that that was a TV show that, you didn't know what it was. It just appeared and it was one man paid for it. And, you know, I, I really, in a way I was hoping that was going to maybe be the future of 
peak TV. And instead, it seems to be, and not that I have a problem with all of these streaming services, but it seems like I would like to see a, a few more creators get a chance to make a thing and put it out into the world as opposed to like, you know, Viacom as a streaming service, <laughs> you know, a new one. And, you know, like, no, also Exxon has a streaming service, <laughs> Exxon Plus. McDonald's, where you can watch all the old McDonald's training videos. Yes. You know. All of the McDonald Land videos are now on McDonald's stream. <laughs> um, the billions and billions streamed on McDonald's stream. <laughs> you know, just it feels like, you know, I, I I couldn't be more excited about Disney Plus, but I would like to see a few more people be able to make a show. There's got to be something in between making a TikTok and making <laughs> The Mandalorian. Yeah, well, the thing is, YouTube has been historically sort of that platform for independent creators to get their shit out there, but it seems like they're really starting to lock it down because of all these controversies that have popped up about, you know, the the weird, like, Spider-Man Elsa videos that are completely inappropriate for kids and right. all that kind of stuff. And it's, it just seems like... That was the place, and now it's not so much anymore. Well, also, you know, really what I want is to be able to make these shows. I don't need to make a fortune off of them. I would like everyone involved to be able to make a nice, reasonable paycheck for doing them mm -hmm. for, a, for a not tremendous commitment of time. And I'd like them to be able to be to live in a world where people can find them and see them. You know, I think... Uh, and then I'm fine. Like if anything, else, if nothing comes of it, you know, I got a chance to make it like there's a world in which like something like that does really well and you get an opportunity to make more. But I truly can't think about that. Be uh, Like I just want a chance to make my five to ten episodes of a thing like I don't know if you've ever if you've ever seen and I think there are. I think the only place to wa to watch them now is on uh, DVD or, you know, and this could change any second now. I think all six episodes are on YouTube, on someone who has a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen the original Police Squad TV show? I have not. I have not. No. All six of them are on YouTube. Now, I haven't seen them in a while. There could be things in them that haven't aged well, possibly, because they were – it was like the – it was decades ago, and it's, you know, three dudes. It was the Zucker Brothers doing comedy. You uh -huh. never know what, you know. Sometimes you think, like, oh, that movie was hilarious, and you go back, and you're like, oh, my God, there's this, like, joke in it that's horrific, you know. like. <laughs> but that was a show that could not have been less successful at the time. It was six episodes. It was unlike any other TV show that had been made because it looks like a drama. It looks like a police procedural it's played deadpan, but the jokes are crazy. Even now, some of the jokes, I was watching point one of the episodes, even now, some of the jokes are like, there's still no one doing this. You know, like it's still. Yeah. Um, and then they made the Naked Gun movies based off of Police Squad. And the Naked Gun movies couldn't be more successful. <laughs> They're among the most successful comedies of all time. Mm -hmm. And still the TV show is obscure. Like it didn't make those six episodes that much more popular. Yeah. Basically the, the TV show lives on is pretty much just a trivia question. Yeah. It genuinely is like if there was a Beatles EP that <laughs> came out before, uh, uh, the first be before, please, please me. And still no one had heard it. Like <laughs> even like, you know, they did 
six songs that are as good as anything on the white album and no one it's still it has like 8000 views <laughs> on you know on SoundCloud or something you know 8000 listens um but I don't care about making the naked gun I just want to make police squad I want to mm-hmm. make I want to make 5 to 10 half hours using the while I'm still in a good while I'm still if not in my prime close to it like while I'm still operating at a decent level of, you know, because I, I do genuinely think about this, that like I'm in my mid forties and I'm still sort of getting started, which mm-hmm. is terrible because, uh, comedy wise, I'm already nearing the point where m- historically people begin to get less funny and less good. Well, you, you don't need to worry about it. Cause Bob Newhart was what? 35. Oh wait, you're older than that. Never mind. <laughs> Yes. Yes. There, you know, you start running out of people uh, to compare yourself to, to and you to only make yourself have, fit, to boost yourself up as you walk on. Yeah, because I also don't, you know, my my. I mean, I have a I have a decade of work that you can find. It's just all at a very obscure level, you know. That mm-hmm. like I started doing stuff on the Gathered Show in 2011, so you can start to see things around that time. M- most of them, I think, hold up if you discover them, but, uh, I, I just want to make the, I just want to make this show that is, it, you know, if anybody out there has act, you know, wants to produce a show, watches talk a doodle do and thinks like they're curious what else could happen in this realm. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't think every show would have the same feeling. I don't think every show would have the same vibe. This one had a very specific sort of, Steinbeck, uh, uh, Arthur Miller vibe, mm-hmm. but I would like to try other, you know, emotional colorations, but there are just people also that I'd like to showcase what they could do. And I also know that like, there's people I just want to do a half hour with. Um, Terry Withers is like a comedian that not a lot of people know, but I have an idea for an episode of television that he would be the main actor on. And I think if people saw this, they would give him his own show. Like he's, he's this undiscovered genius. I love about this project. One that you're super passionate about it and two, uh what you said right there that, you know, it, one of the main things you want to do with this project is help out your friends, your creative friends in every, I, I just love that. Well, it's just like, you know, there was a point where nobody knew who Zach Galifianakis was. And then everybody knew who he was. Mm-hmm. I know people who I'm like, that's that person. That's this person. And there are people who aren't, nece- there are people who aren't going to necessarily get their like hangover moment, you know? And yeah. And in some cases that's fine. Not everybody needs to be a superstar, but it would be nice, you know, uh, Alex Dixon and Alex song and Sebastian Canelli and, and Casey Jost. There's just so many people, uh, Champanet. There's so many people that I worked with on this that, um, I'd like to get a chance because even like Ben Warheit, who is, you know, the, for real, the guest on Talk to Do because he's actually in the Joker movie. Yeah. He's someone that I would also like to work with. He was so great in playing himself and just having to act like he was really going through something. He does he does really subtle work in the episode of playing it real. We'll go back. We'll pick up the first part of this interview. We're going to finish it once he gets comfortable. And we'll go back. We'll pick it up. And it will be fine. All right. You can just ask me the questions because he's not going to talk. All right. He will talk. You know what? How about this? How about this? How about this? But he's also great at scene work. I'd love to do stuff where uh, we get to do something that's more like in the second half with Ben. And there's also like people that like 
when I started off doing UCB, like doing like touring shows, the first out of town like UCB touring show that I did was with Darcy Carden and Brandon Scott Jones, who are now both uh, on The Good Place. Darcy plays Janet on The Good Place, and uh, now Brandon Scott Jones has joined them for their last season as one of the new people on the show. Is he the uh, the uh, gossip columnist? The gossip, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the two of them, if you can find videos of the two of them online, there may be some videos of them. They have like such a spectacular... It's so fun to me to see anytime they even slightly interact in The Good Place because their improv rhythm together is so funny. Like they would do these like morning show characters at UCB mm-hmm. that were just insanely funny. And I would like to be able to do like a half hour with the two of them. Yeah. And I think like I could probably, you know, Darcy is very busy and Brandon's very busy and they're, they're writing and acting and producing shows. But I think it would be possible if I got a studio in LA or in New York for the day and we built a set and I was like, can you guys give me one day and we will do this thing? It's also closer to the type of thing that like, there's a reason why people like Zach Woods and Jason Manzukas keep doing shows at UCB. And it's because, I mean, they work all the time on TV and in movies, but there is a thing that you do when you're doing an improvised show at UCB that is just a different feeling. It's like I, what I what I compared this to when I was pitching a show like this a couple of years ago is right now the things that the great improvisers of our time are being asked to do. I said it's like you have a thousand Jimi Hendrixes and they're all being booked for studio work to play rhythm guitar. And no one is hearing what that they actually know how to solo. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. there's just like a a virtuoso quality that you're. There are improvisers that I've seen in a dozen TV shows that are funny in all those shows because they're good actors. Mm-hmm. But I've never seen the moment on screen. I'll give you an example of one of the few times that I've seen it on actual television in the past couple of years. If you go and watch in the very first episode of The President Show with Anthony Atamanik for Comedy Central, there is a scene that I think it's almost universally agreed is like maybe the best scene in the entire run of The President Show. He's sitting on a stoop outside as Donald Trump and a big Mack truck comes down like a street in Manhattan. So it's not an, it's like down like a neighborhood street where it's like kind of a you know, tight fit for this big truck to kind of slowly go through. And JD Amato was off camera and he gestured to a Tamanek because a Tamanek goes a truck as Trump. He goes, Oh, a truck. And JD gestured like off camera, like keep going. And the crew just followed and Atamanic runs over and he starts like making the gesture to make the truck honk. And he goes, oh, it's a really big truck. And he starts doing this monologue and it's a really macho guy driving that truck. And he starts going into this monologue about how he wishes he could drive a truck and he'd drive it right into the river. <laughs> and he transitions from fantasizing about driving a big truck to – deliberately driving the truck into the river and letting the water fill the cab and then the water would go into his lungs and how he would slowly let himself drown and then he would finally be at peace. <laughs> and then there's a he says that about how and then I would finally be at peace. 
And then there's a pause, and he goes, I'm tired. Bridget, what are we going to do next? And and, and it's such a perfectly timed – everything about it is perfectly timed. Mm-hmm. And when you watch it, especially knowing now – like even not knowing that, it's electric. Yeah. The, the reason it's electric is not – is because you're not watching a pre-written thing that's been rehearsed and is performing well. You're watching it be created. And whether you know that or not, I think you can feel it. I think there's something about it that's different. Yeah, there's just more like truth to the moment. There's nothing quite like it. Yeah. And that's different than let's do a crazy alt where you riff. Mm-hmm. It's just a different kind of improv. And when the camera catches it, the camera loves it. And it hooks you in. And I think like if you watch Alex Dixon and Talk It It'll Do, when she goes into that thing about how uh, I wish I could take care of him like a little baby – or then the part about how I can't give you a child. And she's like telling the story. It's just not what we're used to seeing in terms of like uh, the closest, actually the closest thing to it in some ways would be it's how Mike Lee develops his movies. Uh, the British filmmaker, Mike Lee, mm-hmm. one difference being he writes them through improv and then he tightly scripts it based on the improv and then he film rehearses it and films it. What I would like to do is cut out a step in that process <laughs> which is uh, I'd like to make a show that has an outline, but also that outline is flexible because like part of the reason we had a tight outline for talking it'll do is because we were going to have to do it live. So mm-hmm. we needed to know where it was going so that we could land in the right spots. Yeah. If I had a day in the studio to do a thing like talking it'll do, my process would be that we would have an outline so that, you know, any investor, anyone who's putting money in, would know like well at bare minimum we'll capture this however over the course of the day if we get something that's better than that we're going with that and i really think like that's not to be discounted that it's like we might discover something that's better than what we thought of and rather than it just being a fleeting moment like uh i don't think he does wish me a good day which is like it's just a moment because we have to like fit into the structure it might be something that makes us think like, hold on, let's do a scene where it's you two and you come in and it's like this. And you can really sort of dig in on it. We got everything we needed by 2 p.m. and we have six more hours here. So why not play around and see if maybe – what if we did a scene that would land between this scene and this scene where it's these two characters and we'll film over, over here in this little part of the set? And – uh, we can fade to this or like maybe we could that part you're talking about. Maybe we can flash back and we can see that. Why don't you shave your beard and we'll film that scene mm-hmm. and it'll be like it's a flashback because we've done everything else we need. So like like extreme side coaching. Yes. Yeah. It would be like, yeah, side coaching when you're doing improv. It's like at the side where you're like telling the group, like, why don't you say this? Why don't you say that? <sighs> I really because I feel like um, there is just a world of. Uh, very funny and talented performers uh, who don't always have to be funny. These don't have to be... I don't think of these necessarily as being like 10 hilarious hours, half hours. They might be... There might be some of them that are very sad. There might be some of them that are very... I was always a fan of... And you can't find it anywhere. There was a show that Tracy Ullman did on Fox that it was a show that the Simpsons got its start on. Mm. And sometimes they'd have scenes that would not be funny. They'd just be like a little dramatic. They would take a dramatic turn or something or they would. And it's like, I kind of miss that as a possibility that like, 
Because honestly, like, I genuinely wasn't sure whether Talk a Doodle Doo was funny. I realized once we started doing it, like, oh, of course this is funny. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't care. I was like, maybe this won't be funny, but I know it'll be interesting. And then you realize with a studio audience, you're like, oh, they're finding everything funny. Mm -hmm. Now, if I did this, I would probably, in most cases, not have a studio audience. And the thing that would replace the laughter that people like is a score like a musical score which is also a thing that makes everything better like there's almost no movie or tv show that i love where the music isn't like at least 50 percent of the reason why it works like if you take the music away from a show like the leftovers it's just suddenly not as good a show yeah and a, and a lot of piano players were out of a job or just one very fast fingered piano player. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, honestly, the dream—the dream would be to do the show and get Max Richter, who did the music for the Leftovers, to do like an equally committed. <laughs> uh, honestly, I could do five to ten episodes if they would just let me use the music from the Leftovers. Talk to do. Talk to do with that little that very like the Dum, dum. What, what if we just flip it and you do like a, just a half hour improvised version of the leftovers and then it's done? I do honestly believe, and I hate to give away this trade secret, I do honestly believe that every drama that exists on TV, good or bad, you just need to do a comedy version of each one. Not a spoof, but literally like take the idea – and like the way that show wrecked was basically just like, let's do a lost comedy uh -huh. and, and not spoofy because spoofing is one thing. I don't think like we don't necessarily need like a Game of Thrones spoof. Yeah, the scary movie version. But I do think that every time there's like a water cooler drama, I'm like, why not do this? Like even just trying to do it automatically, you're closer. <laughs> like if you if I tried to make like uh, Big Little Lies. Mm -hmm. I would, without even, without even meaning to, I would probably end up making a comedy version of Big Little Lies. <laughs> you know, The Leftovers is a, such a great idea for a drama. It's also such a great idea for a comedy where it's just like two percent of the population is gone. <laughs> just and although <laughs> Leftovers also does have a handful for being a very serious show, it does have a handful of the funniest things that have happened on TV. Oh yeah, a many many. Funny, just the whole international assassin episode in general was just like so off the walls, bonkers. Even just the fact that the that third season episode with the Perfect Strangers theme music over the top, oh yeah, one of the funniest things that has ever happened on a TV show. I I, I have rarely been happier watching TV than I was during that like forty seconds where I was like. I can't believe they're doing this. And, and the flip side of that, when uh, Mark Lynn Baker comes on as himself, you know, hiding yeah. for years, he pretended to get taken or whatever. Yeah. It, great, like really sort of deep dramatic scene, which you, you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah. And, the, you know, the funny thing is the every good comedic actor I know is a great dramatic actor. Mm hmm. It And that's not true of the reverse <laughs> that like it doesn't take much. All you have to do is just not be funny. And you tell a comedy person, like, don't be funny. And they're like, all right. Mm -hmm. And oh, OK. Whereas you tell a very like I know like you can almost name any comedian and I would have an easier time getting a dramatic performance out of them than if you gave me a very serious actor like a. 
like even like a Daniel Day Lewis or something like that. If you're like, make Daniel Day Lewis hilarious, I'd be like, ah, I'd rather make Carrot Top dramatic. <laughs> you know, like, like uh, it'll, be, it'll just be easier. Not that I mean, obviously, I would love to do a, a comedy with Daniel Day Lewis. I think he would be really funny because he is funny. Although he hasn't done, with the exception of, I mean, the end of there, uh, there will be blood is one of the funniest scenes that anyone's ever done. So that's maybe a bad example because he is so funny in that. That also that scene at the end of there will there will be blood, is a scene that I would often reference when I was trying to pitch this show. Is like that is a scene that you know I believe it was tightly scripted, but if you told me that they improvised that on the set, I would be like, I believe you. <laughs> Where it's like, you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, <laughs> and then by the end of it, he's like throwing bowling balls at him and he's like i'm finished yeah that totally feels like you know they sent an intern out for milkshakes and then they were just sitting around the set yeah Yeah, and they're like paul thomas anderson was rolling they weren't even this was a different movie's bowling alley set and they were on break and somebody started rolling the camera and david lewis was like you have a milkshake and i have a milkshake and i drink your milkshake you know just like that that is the thing that I'm going for is I want I want to make five to ten half hours that feel like they live in the same world as Talkadoodle Do and the last five minutes of There Will Be Blood. So are are you are you married to you know going sort of the traditional route, getting you know like a Viacom or a I don't know Apple Plus to do this, or would you consider no. crowdfunding or something like that? I may end up doing it honestly if I have enough conversations with people over the next year. And I can't get anybody to produce it. Mm-hmm. Then I'm just going to do it myself, I think, because I feel like you can't wait for people. At the, you know, I certainly can't. I don't have enough time left. I, I, you, you, I feel like we lose too many works of art to years of meetings and maybes and uh, I don't have time for non-creative people who aren't willing to take a risk on something imaginative to make up their mind as to whether or not they want something. Yeah. If somebody, if somebody is down, if somebody watches talk a doodle do and they like it, then they, and they want to make something interesting. That's good. And they don't, and that's low risk because the the kind of money this would cost, even if we splurge, uh, would still be the kind of thing that I think smart business people know how to make their money back on it just through trickery. Yeah. Trickery alone. Like I know there are – I don't claim to understand a lot about business, but I know that there are tricks that people do because that's – it's trickery. Like when people say like, well, we made this movie, but before we even sell a single ticket, we've already made our money back through selling the foreign distribution rights and uh, product placement and these things. And I'm like, oh, you made money on a thing that you haven't shown anybody? That's <laughs> those are those are tricks. You've done trickery. I, I I've heard it said that the most creative uh, department in any studio is the accounting department. Yeah, and so it's like I have a cheap show that's good that will be good. And I think the biggest hurdle that I'm going to have to overcome is that I need to find people on the business development side of things who, who are happy being the visionary who's confident enough to be like, we took a chance on this thing and it's great. And you get your glory afterwards, as opposed to the kind of development or executive or business person who 
instead gets that feeling from like we give a lot of notes while we're you know like because mm-hmm. I do think that like it's not a coincidence that like the one TV show in TV history that has like a known deal where we get no notes is also maybe the most successful, which is the Simpsons. Their deal was we don't get notes from the network. Yeah. And it's like, it worked out guys. Like why haven't you tried this a second time? (laughs) You know, just just another one of those cases of uh, referencing before too many cooks. Right. Yeah. That it's like, you know, if I got a producer, if I got a studio that was like willing to let me make this show, I would never stop singing their praises for how, uh, bold and gutsy and visionary they were to let me make the show. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll drop their name constantly. I'll constantly be talking about like they let me do this because they're cool as fuck. You'll take their kids to a uh, soccer practice, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was reading a little bit of Bob Iger's uh, uh, memoir, and the he was talking about Twin Peaks, and he was talking about how um, when. It, he was the head of ABC when Twin Peaks was originally, originally on. He was also the guy who canceled it. Uh, but he said about how when they did Twin Peaks, it opened up uh, filmmakers like Lucas and Spielberg were suddenly willing to have conversations with ABC because they were like, we thought it was really cool that you did Twin Peaks. So it is one of those things where it is like you do draw talent – to you like you like you make a cool thing you'll draw cooler people mm-hmm. because they see the cool thing that's like even if the cool thing is seen only by a handful of people it is the kind of thing that's like oh we noticed you did this weird thing like it does draw in people who are like oh you let somebody make a thing that's like this it, yeah, it helps their brand is you know sort of like a cool experimental place that lets different people try out things that might not hit yeah I just want, like, somebody let me make it. Well, that's another another David Lynch thing, which is David Lynch made the movie Dune, and it was, like, a big flop. And then he wanted to make Blue Velvet, and Dino De Laurentiis uh, was like, well, I'm going to have to give you notes if you're going to make this weird movie. And David Lynch was, I don't want notes. I don't want any notes. I just want to make the movie. And Dino De Laurentiis said to him, if you can make the movie for below this amount of money in the budget, I will give you no notes. And he did it. He figured out a way to make it at a lower budget level and it's, you know, it's a perfect movie and everyone acknowledges it's a perfect movie. Mm -hmm. That is what happens when you have like a bold, brave person on the producing side of it. Who's willing to be like, take a chance on something that's like, you know, all art is risk. All any creative endeavor could go wrong some way. Um, I, I feel no worry about this show because I know if you give me a day with these people in a, in a room, I know we can come up with something that will be good. I know that in the worst case scenario, it'll be an easy salvage job. We can edit together something that will be really good. There's no way that it's going to end in disaster, even though we're going in with only the slightest roadmap. Yeah. And, and the the nice thing about it too, is it just, there's like you said, you know, there's such low overhead on on the entire thing. You know, I, I mean, past the planning stages, you could probably have the entire, you know, five episodes done in a couple months. Oh, I could get the five. I mean, if you, depending on how we ramped it up, I could get them done in a week. Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> that would be a it'd be a nightmare week. But if someone was like, "We need you to do five hour half hour episodes, and we need them by next week," I would be like, "Okay, let's buckle down. Like we can, you know." Um, but it would be it would be very low overhead. It would be very easy and simple to do. In the worst case scenario, you'd make your money back, and no one would 
really care about the show. Mm-hmm. In the best case scenario, you make something that means a lot to a lot of people and the right kind of people. It's a, sort of like you can aim to be a massive success and there's lots of different ways to that. But like, you know, I wouldn't mind being uh, having like just a decent cult hit and have it be a thing that keeps getting discovered in different ways. Yeah, there's a, there's, you know, obviously we all have to make a living. We all have bills to pay. But at the same time, like making something you can be truly proud of, you know, is the best reward you can really get. Because also huge success fades no matter what. Like Mm -hmm. you you can talk about how like police squad, almost no one's seen it. Hopefully people will check it out on YouTube because it is fun. They do a thing in it that's like um, they have a guest star, a celebrity guest star in every episode, but they're literally just in the opening titles and they a car pulls around the corner and that actor rolls out with like a knife in their chest mm-hmm. and that's their only appearance. And that's the guest star for that episode. <laughs> um, there's so many things in it, but the thing is like, if you look at a show like family ties, which was a big hit in the eighties, it was what made Michael J. Fox a star. Mm-hmm. If I make a reference to family ties in an improv show at UCB in 2019, no one in the audience has any idea what I'm talking about. I might as well be talking about, uh, a, sh- a radio show from the 1940s. I I would have as much luck referencing Jack Benny as I would referencing Alex P. Keaton. Oh yeah, in uh, you know, obviously you're way more experienced in improv than I am, but I've done that too, where like I'll make a reference and it's just like dead silence, and I was like, I thought that was gonna kill, and then you realize, oh wait a second, everyone in the room is like 10 years younger than me. Yeah, you can make a reference to Avatar and people don't know what you're talking <laughs> about because you're just like, I was five when that came out and you're like okay you know like uh it it would be like expecting me to like lie you know if i was you know like if when i was you know 16 someone had made a reference to like the sting or the conversation or something like that i'd be Mm -hmm. like what like that movie came out when i was born you know so and then my point being that like you know you can make a tv show and you know 10 years from now game of thrones will be this thing that like was big and everyone you know, who was there will remember it, but people who are eight years old now aren't necessarily, they'll have to choose to decide to watch Game of Thrones and then watch it. Yeah. You know, these things in our culture, there are flashes in time. So getting hung up on whether or not like everybody watches your thing is really just like, it's a meaningless pursuit, except if you really want a lot of money right now. I don't need, I just need enough money to survive. I don't need, I don't need to have a lot of money. I'd like to have a little more money than I have, but if I can make it by but with a few months cushion, I'm fine. I don't need to buy a bunch of things, but I would like to make these five or ten episodes of an unnamed show, Untitled Connor Ratliff Project. <laughs> I, I want that to be the official title when it launches. That would be a terrible title because – Anytime I've ever done a show where the person announcing the show has decided that I'm a big deal and they announce me to the audience, Uh they realize very quickly that what they are holding is a very personal point of view that is not shared by anyone else. (laughs) I I once did a show where they're like, the the person introducing me didn't ask what to say beforehand. I would have been happy. It was like, ladies and gentlemen, Connor Ralph, and then people just have to deal with me on my own terms or whatever. They're like, this guy's a very big deal. And then they listed off TV shows I've been in. And the audience is like, who the hell is this? <laughs> like, they just, you know, there's no reason for anybody to know who I am. But I I really just want to make a, 
to make a show that people can see and you know it wouldn't be it would be nice to get it written about it was nice to be be nice if people liked it mm-hmm. but it's more the the having it and being able to point to it and but you know you can make a TV show and people forget and it's fine people also it's weird because <sighs> success I, I all of uh, so much of my subject matter in comedy uh, it's been pointed out has to do with success and failure. They're the main themes that I find interesting. Even like talking to Lou is all about success and failure and what it means to like, it's a, it's a show about people who fail and fail again. And their, their failure was in pursuit of trying to save themselves from a bigger failure. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, the message is that you just have to try something else. It really wasn't even if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It's that sometimes you need to try something else. Mm-hmm. I've seen people try to do improv and it's, you know, it's hard because this is a conversation that's hard to have. There are people who've tried very hard to do improv and they're okay at it, but they're never going to be great at it. And they're very funny people who I'm like, ah, I'm not the right person to have this conversation with them. Cause I'm not, I'm not, I'm neither close enough to them personally, nor does it matter enough. You know, it, it's just like, you you can't have that conversation with that you know you they have to figure it out in their own way but there are people like you would be a fantastic talk show host but you're not great at holding the the base reality of a scene uh but you are funnier than half the people who are great at doing that you know uh or be like you should do a one man show because you're not good at sharing you know, but you're really funny. You know, there's like, well, it's like they, there are people who are like very good at being presentational and there are people who, who are very good at collaborating and being interactive with other people. There are people who lose themselves in a character and then there are people who the audience loves, mm-hmm. you know, and they just want to absorb the personality, but they don't buy them in a character because they're too, you know, but in any case, like, I do think that's a lesson that not enough people learn, which is that like. You know, I learned for myself that I was probably going to be at best an okay cartoonist, but I wasn't going to enjoy it. And I definitely wasn't going to be a great cartoonist. I was never going to be Chris Ware. I was never going to be Walt Kelly. I was never going to be Charles Schultz. I was never going to be, I didn't have it in me to be a Bill Waterston. And I had to figure out something else, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think that is a thing that not enough people, there are a lot of people out there who are like, trying to do one thing and the thing is like you just got to keep trying it's like sometimes you're not realizing that you're great at something else yeah <laughs> but you know and here i am trying to make a show in a world that doesn't need more shows and there's no one clamoring for a show from me and if you were to actually anyone out there who's thinking like i'd see a show by you you're part of the dozens like, <laughs> Well, I, I feel proud to be part of the dozens. Yeah, it, it's it's not a, uh, you know, I was doing a show, I think it's done uh, on co- for Comedy Central called Dollar Store Dollar Store Therapist. Uh huh. Uh huh. I I emailed uh, the creator of it the other day, and I haven't got a response back yet. I emailed and said like, "So are we done? <laughs> Is it over?" <laughs> because it just stopped. Like we did our last. We were doing them every couple months for a while, and. I was looking at the numbers. You can see the numbers. Mm-hmm. I was like, these don't seem like great numbers. And then, and then I haven't heard from them since like June or July and it's November now. So I thought, I think we're done. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a sign of like, you know, I mean, the one thing I could say about the, the five to 10 episode 
Untitled Connor Ratliff Project. It's maybe better if I just call it Talk-A-Doodle-Doo. Maybe that sounds like it's something more, you know? Well, I, I know uh, in preparing for this interview, I mentioned you to a couple people and what we would be talking about, and that name always got a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's better if I just call it Talk-A-Doodle-Doo, even if we don't do an episode that ever involves Rascal the Rooster. And it's just like, it's just like you know, the Twilight Zone didn't mean anything before, or Black Mirror didn't mean anything until like the title become. It, it, it's like a, a a vessel that you fill up with meaning, you know. Or you could you could have the, the rooster be the uh, Rod Serling of it. The Rod Serling. <laughs> yeah. These are all just stories in the mind of one rooster. <laughs> the one thing I could say about it is, nobody knows who I am, and I'm not a draw, and I can't bring the numbers. But I do think if I started making this, that I would be able to. Uh, ensnare a small handful of ni- of bigger names mm-hmm. to be in episodes. I think there are people. Uh, maybe I've maybe I've already done all the asks I'm ever going to get, but I think there because I think it would be a good show. So I think it wouldn't be like me saying like be on my podcast or something. It would be like or come like do my free show at UCB or something. Yeah, this would be a thing where it's like <clears throat> it'll be SAG, it'll be a thing. People will get to see it. It'll be really good. It's only a day. What do you think of these other episodes? You know, like, even I feel like confident showing Talk a Doodle Doo. I would show Talk a Doodle Doo to Daniel Day Lewis tomorrow. <laughs> I, I would do it today. Like, I would, if Daniel Day Lewis walked in the room, I would confidently say, if Meryl Streep walked in the room, I would say, Meryl. I want to show you something, and I want to see if you'd be interested in being part of something similar. Connor, I have a big surprise for you. Come on up, Daniel. Come on in, Meryl. Uh, Connor has something he wants to say. My straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. You have no style or sense of fashion. Wow, I wasn't expecting this. Okay, um, uh, first of all, it's very nice to... uh, even though I, you know, I'm I'm on Skype for this, so I'm just seeing you on the monitor. This is it's so exciting. I want to. I'm going to send you. Both, give me your emails uh, off mic, and I'm going to send you a link to uh, an hour of television like no other. I drink it up. No, he said off mic, Daniel. Off off mic, mic because you have a clip of that famous movie where Daniel <laughs> <laughs> gives his email address. Gives yeah. his email address out to everybody. Um, it's Daniel Day at gmail.com. Um, D-Day Lewis, D-Day Lewis. I actually used to work for, uh, I worked for NBC for an executive. And so I had access to a lot of like Judd Apatow's email address, uh, Rob Reiner. And they're all exactly what you would guess. (laughs) Every single one of them. Nobody knew when they, when Gmail started, nobody knew. (laughs) But in any case, I really, I really, uh, I'm confident. I, I now at least I have a thing that I can show people, mm-hmm. and there's nobody that I wouldn't be confident to show it to because anything that's like any flaws in it are just have to do with the live unrehearsed nature of it. Whereas I know that what we'd actually make would be it would be a little bit less. What's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, it'd be a little bit less um, rough around the edges. Yeah, it would be a little bit smoother. It would be emotionally rough around the edges, but I think technically it would be a little bit less patchy because we were having to deal with so many different circumstances. Um, but I know how it would look. I know how it would sound. I know, I, like I, and I just don't know what would happen in it. You know, like, and I have some very funny ideas for like, well, we could do one episode that's like this, one that's like that. So it really is just like 
the more people I can show Talk It It'll Do to and the more we can, you know, I would like it to start getting a few more views on YouTube. I, I, my hope is that gradually people will discover it a little bit more because it's just sitting there. My fear is that people will watch the first five minutes and think, I know what this is and mm-hmm. not see the whole thing. But my hope is that word of mouth, I feel like the audience for it is the kind of audience that will sit through if they know there's something coming, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, it was just, it, it was such a great surprise to me to watch it. And I have personally tried to proselytize this across the wider internet, but, you know, I my internet doesn't go that wide. <laughs> so I've, I've done what you I can. You and me both. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And I thank you for saying that. I, I It's honestly, it's one of those things that at, at, at the current moment, I'll talk to anybody about it because, like, mm-hmm. I do think that there are a few things that I've done where I've felt really, like, passionate about like um in the in the early days of the gathered show uh, i did these short films with uh, an, an animator mael Dalivo, who's an illustrator and an author and just a great artist and we would get a suggestion from the viewers on twitter and then we would make a three-minute film in a week and she would make the visuals and then she'd give me the visuals mm-hmm. and then i would edit them into coherence because she would just give me things that looked good, yeah. but no co- no content, no context. You know, like she'd ha- do video of people talking, but we wouldn't have agreed on what they would be talking about. And then I would sometimes have, in one case, I had uh, an hour to edit it because she didn't get me the final footage until like 6 p.m. on the Wednesday night. And I had to have the disc formatted and at public access by 10.30. Oh, wow. And... She gave and she gave me uh, forty five minutes of stop motion animation, and I had to. It was heartbreaking. I had to edit it into a three minute. Oh. It was devastating because she basically she did an insane amount of work, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Here's the footage," and I'm like, "Mael, how am I supposed to decide what to not use in this? <laughs> it all looks good. We can make a forty minute movie. Who knows what will happen? I haven't a clue." And those films, which were called The Lone Cornmeal Machine, which you can see on YouTube, and I think they still probably have views in the hundreds. They're very low viewership for what they are. And and this is a fun fact. Uh, John Mulaney was on the show in one of the first Gathered Show episodes, and he pitched the Lone Cornmeal Machine to Lorne for SNL. Oh, wow. There was a brief moment in which it looked like the Lone Cornmeal Machine was going to go directly from episode eight of the Chris Gathered Show <laughs> Public Access to Saturday Night Live. It was going to be not... like the new like Milton or uh, Ambiguously Gay Duo or something like that. Yeah, it was going to be like TV Funhouse or Mockies or any of those number of, of uh, like digital shorts. And uh, obviously did not happen. But like those films are a thing that I genuinely was like for a number of years, I was trying to develop like a kid's show or something where we could do a similar kind of thing because I looked at it. And I'm like, this is something that when you look at it, it's it feels very accomplished. And I haven't really had anything like that for a while um, where I felt like 
I wanted to make more of it. And I feel like with Talking Doodle Doo, it's, it is a calling card to, you know, so I guess I have fallen into the trap of a stepping stone type <laughs> thing. But it is just like towards an end, which is I just want to make five to ten half hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if someone comes to me and says, we'll give you four or we'll, you must make eleven. You know, I'm I'm just using that as a general guide for the fact that I'm not looking to make 70 episodes of a thing. Yeah, or like 20 seasons and three reunion specials or anything like that. You know, if that were to happen, great, but that's not part of my vision or goal for it at this point. That really is just like, I will be happy if somebody is willing to take a chance. And it's a very small chance. It's just like the the odds that you'll lose money are very low the odds that you'll make a fortune are also very low, <laughs> but it lands right in a place where it's like, maybe for a lot of people, it's that, you know, that's just not worth their time. They want to make, everything's got to be, we want to make a fortune as opposed mm-hmm. to like, do you want to spend a little bit of your time making something that you can point to and say like, we made something really different. You know, you just need to find someone who wants to experiment and doesn't care about money or like, isn't, is in a position where like, cause I'm not asking people to risk a lot. Mm-hmm. The people that I want to help out, uh, making something like this, it, it really wouldn't be, I mean, this show would be a rounding error on most shows. Yeah. Like the budget for this would just be like, uh, what they spend doing, you know, their, their extra stuff, you know, it really wouldn't be much. And, you know, I'm a big believer in that when you do, I don't believe in karma necessarily, but I'm a big believer in the idea that like there is something to certain kinds of, of success do lead to other things. Like you make police squad and then later on you get to make the naked gun or something, you know, like there are, there was a period where Judd Apatow couldn't get any of his pilots made because freaks and geeks and undeclared had both been considered flops. Uh He's like trying to make a TV show with, like Jason Siegel or, or, or Seth Rogen and executives are like, we don't want these people. And within five years, these are major movie stars and Judd Apatow is making these hit movies. And it's like any executive who couldn't make this work in TV form didn't know what they were doing. Like they, like there's just no way that like, um, it was something that Judd was doing wrong. Yeah. It was, it was something about the way it's like, you're not pushing this right. You're not finding the right, you know, I didn't see freaks and geeks when it was, when it first aired and that's not my fault. Mm-hmm. I would have watched it if I'd known what I was missing. And I was the per, I was the target market for that show. And it's like, how did they not manage to target me? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the people who make, uh, t-shirts, uh, with tie-ins to pop culture, started working on marketing film and TV shows, uh, everyone would be doing a lot better because every ad I get for like, <laughs> how about a t- how about a t-shirt that says this? I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know me like, like those t-shirts that are like only people born in January who live in West Virginia do this thing or whatever. Yeah. Some of the targeted, like I get a targeted ad and it'll be like, uh, do you want a radio land murderers t-shirt? And I'm like, you know too much about me. You know that I need this for my George Lucas talk show. You know, like I literally will like, you know, get these targeted things. I'll be like, frighteningly, I'm not asking TV and film to start data mining me because that's obviously the, the, what I'm talking about here, but you're like, please Sony, put a camera in my bedroom, please. But there are ways of figuring out, like my point is that there are ways of figuring out how to sell things, how to sell good things to people. I always Mm -hmm. like, 
there's a line in the last episode of Sports Night. There's a really good Aaron Sorkin line, which is he has the Clark Gregg plays this like they're they're terrified that this like big company is going to buy the network that Sports Night is on and then cancel Sports Night. And Felicity Huffman, uh, oh god, there's so many like disgraced or <laughs> or, or now like controversial people in this story now. Felicity um, Huffman bribes somebody and then the no Felicity Huffman meets with Clark Gregg. Well, Clark Gregg is everyone likes Clark Gregg. Um, Clark Gregg is the executive and she meets with him and she finds out that he's not going to cancel sports night. And there's a line that's something along the lines of, um, anybody you can't figure out a way to make money off sports night should get out of the money making business. And I really like that line. I like the way it turns it back on the, cause so often it's like the creators are blamed for like their flops. Whereas in a lot of cases it's like, all we want is for like the people whose job it is to sell things to figure out the way to, I think there's a, you can sell anything that's good. You can sell it to people. If it's good, mm-hmm. you can, there is a way to figure out how to sell it to people. I really believe that there are very few things that, uh, are truly good creatively that there isn't a path. Now I'm not saying it's always easy, but it wasn't easy to make the good creative thing either. It's like, I do believe in like get creative with the way that you market a thing and get uh, figure out who you're who you want to watch this show and let them know about it. You know, yeah, and they, that's a, that's such an important part of it too. Because I mean, you know, right now we could have the next you know Scorsese out there on YouTube and his YouTube channel has like five views because no, no one knows about it and he doesn't know how to tell them. Yeah, he knows how to be Scorsese. He doesn't know how to be the person who sells Scorsese. Um, exactly. Also, it's it's just like, um, you know, when you think about like George Lucas, no one was interested in the merchandising rights for Star Wars. So he kept them instead of selling them to because no one was thinking that this was a way to and he was thinking this is a way to make the movie more successful is that there should be toys of these. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason those movies are big. Those movies would not be as big if there were zero toys. Yeah. And that was the guy who was creating the movie also figured out, well, here's what we can do. Interestingly, since then, uh, there's this great documentary series on Netflix about each episode's about like the toys we grew up with or something. I can't remember what it's called, but there's an episode about Star Wars toys. Mm -hmm. And I did not realize that then when Star Wars Episode One came out, they sold licenses to everybody. And everybody wanted to buy a license to make merchandise off of the Phantom Menace. And then they overdid it. Everybody was left with warehouses full of, you can still find tons of episode one. Like there was this pattern of, and then they did it again. Disney did it again with The Force Awakens where like a year after every Star Wars movie, you can go to any dollar store and there's just like, guess what? We made dental floss uh, picks. Didn't they have like, they had like BB-8 oranges or something, didn't they? Yeah, I think. Yeah, you can buy like Darth Vader apples and everybody's, (laughs) and I don't think that sells more apples. An apple a day keeps the dark side away. At one of my George Lucas talk shows, I gave away uh, Force Awakens dental floss picks. And it's just like, it's like the apples where there's nothing unusual about the dental floss picks. It's just the bag had Kylo Ren on it. Yeah. That's yeah. not the way you sell Star Wars. Like there, it's amazing mm. to me that there are these, like you had to market it, like takes as much creativity and savvy. And it's not just like, uh, yeah, it's hard. That's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think there is a way if you make something good, uh, all it takes is letting people know about it and making it, finding a way that those people can watch it. And then you just have to hope that they have time to watch it in an era where, there's very little time and too much content. Well, you know, I th- I think 
probably the smartest move you can make is like a first folly on this project is coming on this podcast and talking about it with me. So I, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on today, Connor. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me. If people want to follow talk a doodle do, I managed to get talk a doodle do on Twitter, even though, Oh my God, even though there is I'm following it right now, there is a, uh, there, there was one previous iter because I, I assumed that talk a doodle because oh I didn't I didn't say in the origin of the thing that uh, then when I was going to do a cock a doodle do was the original title and then when I realized it was going to be a talk show I was like oh we'll call it talk a doodle do and then I started googling mm-hmm. to see has this already been done I'm like this is too good an idea surely it's already been done the only instance of talk a doodle do that I could find prior to mine is somewhere in the Midwest there's like an early link early learning language program called talk a doodle do and you know they have like some some graphics and they have you know it doesn't look like it's a, a rinky dink affair yeah but they did not register the twitter and that was a big mistake well that's on them then <laughs> and so you can follow talk a doodle do um we're going to be doing a live um christmas show in new york at ucb hell's kitchen on december 9th um, it's going to be like a late night Monday night show and it's not going to, I, we're going to hopefully try to film it so that there's an online version of it that people can see who aren't in New York, but mm-hmm. it is going to be kind of like a standalone holiday special. It will take place after the events of talk. It'll do on CGP before the events of talk. It'll do a uh, talk. It'll two, which will hopefully be a future episode of CGP. But it will be canon. It will be part of the story. Excellent. Uh, Casey Jost and I are writing some songs for it, which hopefully will work. And uh, Oh, more than one. Yeah. Right now we have uh, four songs written. A possible fifth song might be in it, or we might cut some songs. I think you should just double up on them. Just make it a full musical episode or a few full Full musical. musical Well, yeah, it might be a stage musical. The thing is, we are not going to have a lot of time to rehearse this either. So uh, (laughs) there's one song that I'm like, this involves the entire cast and it might require more than I'll be able to wrangle um, because a lot of the people are very busy. But we're going to be doing that show. And then uh, you can also follow me at Connor Ratliff on Twitter. Thanks for listening to the show. If you have your own big idea you've made a reality, we want to hear about it. Let us know by emailing imadethisatdoanything.media. We'd love to share your project, or maybe even talk to you about it. You can follow the show at imadethisshow, all one word, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, that's at imadethisshow. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or on our website, imadethis.doanything.media. Again, that's imadethis.doanything.media. And if you do subscribe, make sure you leave a review so we can shout you out on the show. I'm Bill Meeks. Thanks for listening.